What if horses could breathe fire? What if other horses swam in the ocean or vanished into the shadows or rained lightning from the sky? Or if you're a human being, what if you were a king's daughter in a Rohan-like kingdom, exiled from the palace to guard the borders, and then your land was invaded? Naturally, author Jillian Bronte Adams can answer these questions in her new novel from Enclave Publishing just released, Of Fire and Ash. Jillian now joins us to explore this fantasy world with its elemental horses and elemental fantastical themes. Thank you for riding back into Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we apply the meanings of these stories to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher. Subscribe for free at lorehaven.com. I also helped co-write the nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and even though I am a proud fifth-generation Texan. I am very far from a cowboy or equestrian expert or horse handler. And this is episode 91, What If You Fought Astride Elemental Horses to Unify Your Kingdom? And we'll be talking with an actual horse expert, Jillian Bronte Adams, in her book of Fire and Ash. I'm now 40% through of Fire and Ash. We'll find out in just a moment what I've been thinking of it. But first, I must express some gratitude that after the last episode with Shane Morris exploring the Harry Potter verse, the wizarding world, I have escaped the glass jar. I have been untransmogrified from beetle form and I get to enjoy sterling silver audio quality now. <laughs> uh, thanks in part to our returning engineer, Zach Russell. Zach, thank you so much for making sure to restore me to my human form. I really appreciate the assist there. <laughs> so Stephen, have you ever ridden horses? Uh, what what are those experiences been like for you? I have. I am actually uh, from Kentucky, I would say. I spent a fair amount of my growing up there, about 20 years, I'd say, 1993 to about was it 2013 or so? Yes. So there was a time of being homeschooled uh, when I was able to enjoy horseback riding lessons, uh, learned to ride English style as well as Western, at least up until the point of cantering. Once they started that horse going faster than a trot, uh, I was pretty terrified. Uh, and I never, I don't think, got to the gallop stage, uh, much less jumping and tricks and all that stuff that Jillian probably knows how to do in her sleep. I enjoyed it for a while. Uh, I think if someone put me into a stable now with a horse and said, here, clean this beast and then put the saddle back on. It may take me a while, but I might actually remember where everything goes. Uh, I might not remember what everything is called, but I could get the bit in the mouth and cinch it up and all of those things. And uh, who knows, the beast may not actually hate me at the end, even if it is a normal horse, uh, not a talking horse from Narnia or an elementally charged horse uh, from Jillian Bronte Adams's world, which we will explore in just a moment. Before we do, though, uh, do subscribe to lorehaven.com. It is a free subscription. Uh, our subscriptions have been picking up just a bit, uh, probably because we are soft announcing the opening of the newest Lorehaven feature coming in January. It will be called the Lorehaven Guild. You can sign up and be among the first to find out what that is. Just go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe. Well, my earliest memories of horses, I only have two, really. They're both pretty embarrassing in high school. One was where... I tried to get a horse to run around these barrels and I, the whole time I was pulling the reins back. So of course 
I'm trying to get him to go forward and I'm pulling him back and the horse. Oh, that's genius. That, okay. That, You're stepping on the gas and the like, brake at the same you, time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The horse is like, what are you doing? What do you want me to do? <laughs> you just broke equine law there flagrantly. Yeah. And then the, the other time was a horseback ride through uh, like a nature trail. And th- those were like the, uh, the horses for dummies, like that you couldn't do anything wrong. Those horses just, they, they knew their little route on the trail and that's what they did. And you just sat on them and they did all the work and, you know, I think that's probably why I'm more of a sci-fi guy now than a fantasy guy, even though I do like some fantasy. But uh, in sci-fi, you know, you y- you don't ride on something that has its own mind. You just push a button and then it goes to warp or whatever. It's a lot simpler than uh, than an actual animal. I have to admit, if I had to choose between a spaceship and a horse, I would absolutely choose between a spaceship. Uh, the waste products would seem to be a little cleaner as well. <laughs> I, I like fantasy and science fiction, I think, fairly equally. And in fact, in our next episode, uh, Rillian uh, rejoins us from last year and we explore uh, the release of The Fellowship of the Ring 20 years after that film released. So tune in next time to find out about that. Before Jillian uh, Bronte Adams rides up out of the sunrise, here is our first sponsor for this episode, uh, Mountain Brook Fire. The publisher is back uh, with a new title. And this one is from uh, novelist Alyssa Rowett. Uh, her novel is Wraithwood. This is described as a YA fantasy for readers who like magic, mystery, and atmospheric settings, such as the setting of a mysterious mansion and Arthurian legend. Here is the back cover. Brianna Brenny Lane has always lived a quiet life under the watchful eye of her hovering mother until she is sent off for the summer to live with an uncle she didn't know she had. While her parents get to travel across the globe, she will be spending three months in the middle of nowhere, upstate New York. It looks like she might spend the entire summer friendless with her nose in a book. However, she soon finds that Wraithwood Estate, her uncle's creepy old mansion, holds as many secrets as the man himself. When Brittany is warned not to explore any of it, her curiosity only grows. As unnatural events take place and Brittany hears whispers of a hidden war, she must unravel the truth about her family's mysterious past if she wants to survive. Something terrible happened at Wraithwood 30 years ago, and Brittany is determined to find out what, even if it means confronting the possibility that magic is real. That's a story description. What a finish there. I love that creeping possibility that magic is out there somewhere, that it might be real. You will find the complete back cover description of that book, as well as the cover at our show notes for episode 91, or go to lorehaven.com podcast sponsors. Jillian Bronte Adams is the horse-riding, wordsmithing, wander-loving, epic fantasy author of The Song Keeper Chronicles and of Fire and Ash. That's book one of the Fireborn epic just released from Enclave Publishing. She's rarely found without coffee in hand, and she is also rumored to pack books before clothes when she hits the road. Now she writes stories that ring with the echoes of eternity, following outcast characters down broken roads through epic battles and onward to adventure. Jillian, thanks for writing into the Fantastical Truth Studios. Uh, what exactly is your fantastical means of transport? That uh, that fire-breathing beast I see prancing outside the front door. Yes, this is a fireborn, which is one of the magical breeds of horses featured in A Fire and Ash. Well, thanks so much for writing in today. Uh, let's go straight to chapter one of this discussion. How did you discover biblical faith and fantastical stories? And the alternate translation of that question, of course, as Zach likes to say, is when did you accept Aslan as your lion and savior? 
<laughs> so it started for me when I was five years old. Um, my dad sat us down and he started doing read alouds from The Hobbit um, and then jumped in to The Lord of the Rings. Um, so my first introduction to stories and to books uh, were, you know, epic fantasy fiction. Um, I absolutely loved Lord of the Rings, would sit there coloring while my dad was reading, um, and then eventually would sit on the couch behind him and like watch as he read, follow along on the page. Um, so when I turned seven, I can't remember whether it was for my birthday or for Christmas, um, but he gave me my own copy of The Lord of the Rings, and I carried it around with me everywhere for the next several years. Um, and that was the only thing that I would read. So was this before The Lord of the Rings was especially cool uh, the, with the movie version? As uh, Rillian and I talk about in our next episode, actually, I had to catch up to The Lord of the Rings really quick uh, before seeing the films. But it sounds like you got an earlier start on that. I did. Um, so by the time the films came out, I think that was when I was 10 or 11. Um, I'd already read the books like three or four times. Uh, so I went into the films being like, okay, it has to be exactly like the books or I'm not going to be happy. Um, and probably annoyed a lot of my friends by being like, this is what actually happened. I'm sorry for your <laughs> but Tom eventually, loss. Yeah, the, I know. the book is always better. <laughs> the no book is what. always better. <laughs> eventually I came around and I'm a huge fan of the films now. I love them for what they are. but. As, a, as an 11-year-old, I kept pointing out all the differences. <laughs> well, that shows in Of Fire and Ash as well, uh, for sure. Uh, but before we get into that, Zach, I'm actually thinking now, how many times is this? I mean, we've joked about uh, you know accepting Aslan as your line and savior, but I'd say that I'd, uh, at least 50% of authors' respondents, uh, responses to the question are actually not about Narnia, but about I was mm -hmm. X years old and my dad was reading aloud stories to us. And now I'm thinking, can we get a crossover Fantastical Truth episode in the future where we just invite everybody's dads to yeah. read aloud from the books and maybe without violating copyright? They could read their, uh, re they could read their adult children's books. They could read excerpts from those. That would be, that'd be a great idea. So it's almost more like when did you invite Gandalf into your heart? There you go. Yeah. Well, in this case, it could be a Father's Day special, you know, the Fantastical Truth Father's Day special. Please, <laughs> listeners, don't hold us to it. I am just completely thinking <laughs> off the top of my head at that point. Well, so Jillian, tell me about horseback riding. Like, how long has that been a part of your life and what, what's that look like? Yeah. So I started horseback riding um, around the same time that I got my copy of Lord of the Rings um, when I was about seven years old. <laughs> um, my parents took me to do horseback riding lessons and it wasn't really my thing at the time. It was my older sister's thing. Um, but eventually we wound up getting horses of our own. And as soon as I had my own horse, um, that changed everything. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, have been a big fan of horses and horseback riding and just the whole, um, equestrian culture since then. And what's your horse's name? Uh, so my first horse's name was Sylvester and he was this old horse. He was like 30 years old when we got him. Um, we referred to him as the British gentleman because he had <laughs> this Roman nose and was just very dignified, um, super sweet horse. You could just uh, hop on his back bareback and just sit out there. So I would actually lay on his back while he was grazing in the pasture and I would read books out there on horseback for years because he was just the the sweetest, gentlest creature. My current horse, his name is Ariet, um, and I've had him for about 12 years now. Well, you know, I've talked about this before on the show. It, it's been a really long time since I've read Lord of the Rings, but yes, I, I can see the horse influence from there. Um, of course, it's in the movies big time. I'm, I'm a Wheel of Time fan, and, and there's a subculture of Wheel of Time that is fan of a particular horse in the show called Bella. 
that uh, everyone is very concerned about watching the show. Like, is Bella going to make it? Did did Bella make it out of the haunted city? Did the Trollocs eat Bella? No, Bella's fine. And so I, I just, I love this, that within the subculture of fantasy, there's the sub-subculture of horse fans. So that that's really cool. And, and you've just owned that and your your books are about these magical horses. So I, I can't wait to hear more about this. I'm a Bill the Pony fan myself. I wanted to make sure that the movie's done <laughs> Bill right. Goodbye, Bill. That was the last they ever saw of Bill. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Such a sad moment. <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah, at least they managed to attribute that in the in the Fellowship of the Ring film. I think that may have actually been an extended only scene, as I recall. But uh, I have to ask you, Jillian, before we move to chapter two, and this uh, may be rather of a setup. It was an unscripted question. Multiple choice. Uh, which kingdom of, of men in Middle Earth is your favorite? The Lost Northern Kingdom, Gondor, or Rohan? That's a hard question, actually. Um, oh, oh, it is. I'm okay. going to have to say Rohan just there because of the horse aspect. Yeah. Um, but I also have always been so intrigued by the Lost Northern Kingdom. So throw that in there also. Yeah. Just because I'm a huge Lord of the Rings Silmarillion nerd. Yeah, it should. Uh, my, my wife grew up uh, similar to you. Uh, maybe not so much of uh, reading on horseback and such, uh, but she also got hold of the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion early. And so she gets to be the purest watching the films. And at one point, she and her family actually boycotted the Two Towers. She has never seen the Two <laughs> Towers theatrical edition or in theaters, only the extended oh. cut because of Faramir. They heard what was going on with Faramir. And of course, it could have been far worse if you hear what they would have done with Arwen at Helm's Deep. But stay tuned, faithful listeners, to the next episode with Rillian uh, going over some of the Lord of the Rings fandom. We are now in the Fireborn Epic fandom, which leads us to chapter two of this new series just released of Fire and Ash from Enclave Publishing. And I must ask you, Jillian, then uh, what images led to your creating this world? How did you ride into the complex, fantastical world of the Fireborn Epic? Yes. So I grew up obviously loving the Kingdom of Rohan in The Lord of the Rings. Um, Always wanted to see more of Eowyn's story in particular. Um, I was just super fascinated by how she was such a unique and strong character um, and just wanted to get more out of her story than we got in either the book or in the film. Um, And I think I related more to how she was actually in the book. When I first had the idea for the worlds that we see in the Fireborn Epic. I was working as the head wrangler at a youth camp, running a horse program for kids throughout the summer months, um, managing a herd of 26 plus horses, and just getting to see kids experience this world that I loved so much and experience horses for the first time. So thinking about kids experiencing this world that I love so much, these magical, you know, majestic creatures, or rather majestic creatures, not so magical, Um, And because I love fantasy, I started thinking about how we could take these majestic creatures and throw in some magical elements. What would it look like if there were horses who could breathe fire? What would it look like if there were horses who could fly and summon lightning from the clouds? Um, And I was immediately captivated by this idea and just started brainstorming out all the different magical breeds, horses. um, I refer to them as ninja horses. They're uh, shadowers. They can vanish into smoke and fog. and Loved these animals, loved the idea of these magical breeds of horses, um, but didn't have a story that I wanted to tell in that world. And I knew that it had to be an epic enough story to exist in this world of magical war horses. So it was a couple months later before I actually remembered that I had this story idea that had been sitting on the back burner and I hadn't known exactly what to do with it. 
And it was the story of a disinherited heir, the daughter of a king who had been cast aside by her father um, because of this tragic accident that had happened and really wanted to tell her story, but didn't have a unique world that it took place in. There was nothing interesting about it. It was like a a non-fantasy version of Scotland. Um, So months after having both of these ideas separately, I finally was like, what if... I actually took these ideas and combined them and put them together. What would happen? Um, And eventually, you know, I wound up with the story that became of Fire and Ash. So can you read the back cover now from book one of the Fireborn epic series of Fire and Ash just released on uh, December 6th, did it not? Tuesday, December 6th in the hardcover version? Uh, Yes, Tuesday, December 7th. So just a couple days ago. December 7th. There you go. (laughs) Yes, as we record. So what is the back cover for that story? She rides a fireborn, a steed of fire and ash trained for destruction. Caradwen Taldesman dreams of ruling like her father over the nation of Soldonia, where warriors ride to battle on magical steeds, soaring on stormwinds, vanishing in shadow, quaking the earth, and summoning the sea. After a tragic accident claims her twin brother, she is exiled and sworn to atonement by spending her life or death for her people. But when invaders spill onto Soldonia's shores and traitors seize upon the chaos to murder her father, Caradwin claims the crown to keep the nation from splintering. Combating overwhelming odds and looming civil war, she begins to wonder if the greatest threat to the kingdom may, in fact, be her. With fire before her and ash in her wake, how can she hope to unite instead of destroy? Awesome. And I'm about 40% through this book and I'm enjoying it. I actually, though, as you read that, I'm grateful that I forgot the back cover uh, because it actually gives away a, a, a character's death right there. And somehow I had forgotten that. And so when it happens in the book, I'm like, whoa, I guess I should have seen that coming. Wait a minute. Did I see that coming? Oh, yeah, it was on the back cover. And this is one of the <laughs> advantages or disadvantages of having the digital version of the book. Uh, I think mm-hmm. this one, um, I actually want to get this one in the hardcover now. Uh, because it is indeed epic in scope. And in that style, it actually feels different from a lot of the books I've been reading. Uh, The last similarly scaled book that I read was actually Dune. And Zach and I talked about that a few episodes ago. Uh, Dune is written in third person and is, of course, very plot heavy. You're a lot more character heavy. You've got three heroes going on here, basically three journeys put together. uh, and, And that is closer to that epic side of fantasy. And of course, Unlike a lot of YA books that I've seen, you're writing in the third person, and which means you can jump from these different stories and then, you know, eyes the reader start to see them weave together and then realize, oh, this is all connected. You know, there's a plan here. I feel in good hands. You know, it's, it's like, well, it's like being an expert horse rider. Like, can you go into some of the, um, some of the methods you use to, to create this story and, and what, what do you think may uh, make it unique? One of the things that I think definitely makes this story unique is the magical breeds of horses. Um, And because I've spent so much of my life around horses, I really wanted to be able to um, write a story where the horses felt authentic and they felt real. So even though they're magical, they're not talking horses, um, they're not more intelligent than actual horses are. So they're animals first and foremost, and they just have these magical skills that the warriors can then wield in battle. Um, So one thing that I think uh, readers particularly are excited about um, is just particularly readers who have been around horses or grew up loving horses, which there are quite a lot of them out there. They are very excited about the fact that these horses actually feel real. They move and act like real horses. Um, You have to 
teach them to do things where they're not going to know to do it instinctively. And that's just exciting. It's not always something that you see with fantasy creatures in fantasy stories. Caridwin is uh, is one of the three characters, and then you have a, a couple of other young men from different backgrounds. Uh, one of them won't give away their names, and one of them actually has two names. It kind of switches back and forth for very intriguing reasons. Uh, has a frightening encounter uh, with one of these beasts. Uh, not the not the fire-breathing, um, ash-spewing kind, uh, but uh, one that's associated with another element. Uh, and that kind of reminded me that if you were not familiar with these creatures in this culture, uh, it could strike you as very much that these are demon creatures, uh, something to fear instead of something to train. And I'm actually then thinking, okay, horses are kind of like dragons here, you know? And from uh, from a biblical perspective, you know, you've got a possible latent theme in here of the idea that God gave humans these creatures to train, uh, to steward. Uh, and that if you don't understand that, if you don't understand their place in the world, uh, then they can be very frightening and very scary, uh, which reminds me, by the way, that fantasy or even epic fantasy or even darker fantasy can also seem scary to people. Uh, but I, I like how you have trained it now in service of these ideas. Like, Can you expound a little bit on just some of the more uh, organic spiritual themes that are going on uh, in, in the world of, of, of Fire and Ash? So in a Fire and Ash we meet one character, and I'm actually, I'm going to tell you his name. He's one of the three main characters, uh, and his name is Yakim, and he is what's called a scroll, which is like a novice priest um, in the story world. And the reason they're called scrolls is because they actually record the holy writ on their skin. So it's inked into their skin or tattooed into their skin, and there's a very specific story world reason for why that's the case. Um, but Yakim uh, frequently throughout the story, he's repeating these essential truths of God in the story, who goes by the name Aed is how he's known and worshipped. Um, so throughout this story, Yakim, as he is this novice priest um, and is learning the truths of Aed and trying to see how um, these truths that he's been taught and that he believes actually play out in real life, when you begin to face challenges and you have written on your skin and you believe that Aed is compassionate and Aed is merciful, well, how do you begin to think about and understand that truth when you're experiencing difficult circumstances, when life isn't playing out the way that you think it should? So a lot of the spiritual themes within the story um, are built into the journeys that the characters themselves are facing and experiencing. And Yakim, I think, is a particularly interesting character because he is a priest. And yet he, in the very first chapter where we see him, this isn't necessarily a spoiler because it's right up there at the front, he breaks his newly sworn vows and he lies his way onto this missionary journey in the hopes of being able to travel home. So here he has these strong beliefs and yet right at the start, we see him break those vows and then begin to have to wrestle with the consequences of both his actions, his choices, the crazy things that happened to him on his journey, and these truths that he you know, believes and is trying to, to uphold of who God or Aed is in the story. So let's jump really quick from horses to robots, setting up sponsor two for this episode, who once again is T.E. Bradford the author of the science fiction title Awakened, just released this month. Here's the back cover. What if your worst enemy was your only hope? What if saving your life meant destroying your beliefs? How far would you go to survive? Manufactured anodic commandos, or MACs, were designed for battle. Most people believe sending robotic soldiers into combat is better than risking human lives. 
But Kara has seen what happens when unfeeling, soulless automatons decide who lives and who dies. Machines don't care whether the enemy is holding a rake instead of a gun or that a six-year-old girl watches from a bedroom window. All they know is what they were programmed for, destruction. When Kara finds herself wounded and defenseless in the middle of a battle zone, she has no choice but to use the only weapon she can find, a disabled MAC. Without him, she won't make it out alive. With him, she might come out a different person. Will hate destroy her, or will the natural love of a creator for its creation open her eyes to a truth that changes everything? You can find that full description, the cover for Awakened, as well as the purchase link in our show notes for episode 91, as well as at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. I have a thought about uh, Yakim, but I, I want to actually go back uh, a minute to the uh, back cover copy about Caradwin. First of all, she's starting off with this backstory of her twin brother dying and it, it's mm-hmm. she's exiled because of that now her father is is dead and then she has to take over but she's worried that you know she's going to destroy the kingdom she's maybe she's the problem it's kind of like that that internet meme are we the baddies you know like that 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 was like the first thing that came to mind is that she seems very like haunted by all of this and worried that she's just going to break everything she touches so I imagine there's there's some spiritual themes going through your head with that. So because uh, I, I think that is a very Christian point of view of like being very concerned about your own brokenness and how that's affecting others. So can you tell us more about that? Yes, I love writing about broken characters um, in particular, and Caridwin's journey I relate to um, a lot just personally. She carries this huge weight of guilt because of this tragic accident and this thing that happened to her brother um, and all of the consequences of that. And she's basically um, built up this identity in it. It's become this thing that she believes defines herself, um, and she uses it almost as a wall to barricade herself from others. Um, it prevents her from ever being vulnerable if she's, you know, uses that to almost shield herself from ever having to to feel. And it's something that you know I can relate to a lot, just having you know experienced a lot of guilt over different things, and know how much that can really just cut you off from people, and it becomes this weight that eventually is impossible to bear. Um, And so without giving spoilers, (laughs) part of Caridwin's journey through the book and part of kind of the spiritual themes that we begin to see emerge as she's invited into this fellowship of people who grow to love and care for her, um, we're, you know, just hoping that she has this moment where she realizes that even though this event that happened, this thing that she feels a ton of guilt over, even though it's been a defining moment in her life, it doesn't have to actually define her. And it doesn't define her worth or her value um, or her identity, that that is something that exists outside of herself. Um, And that's something that I think particularly a lot of girls and a lot of women and a lot of teen girls struggle with. I don't know if you guys heard that. My dog made a really weird noise. That was a very (laughs) weird dog noise. (laughs) I was wondering if it was a horse, but a, yeah, it's yeah. Just, just a dog. <laughs> just he's inside. <laughs> yes. I would have put him elsewhere, but he's kind of sick at the moment. So oh, he's in poor, the house so I can keep an eye on him. Poor, 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 <laughs> so, poor creature. Sorry. <laughs> I think that um, self-worth in particular and identity is something that uh, teen girls and women in particular struggle with. Um, and it's something that they can carry with them throughout life for a long time. And so getting to explore that concept through Caridwin's journey um, and begin to you know, gradually 
speak truth into that, into her sense of guilt and um, just really negative self-worth, the idea that she has of, you know, how valuable she is. Um, I'm excited about how that might encourage and inspire readers. I'm also excited about that. And I can say, though, as well, uh, that although I am a dude and I've been on a bit of a tear recently about how we need more fantastic Christian-made fantasy for dudes, I think James R. Hannibal uh, joined me in that assessment in our last live stream with Realm Makers. This is a book for dudes. Uh, the back cover yes. uh, emphasizes Caridwin uh, and her journey, and you don't even hear that there are also two male heroes as well. Uh, they come up pretty early uh, in in the novel, though, and, and then the chapters are eventually switching between these three hero or two heroes and one heroine, as I mentioned. Uh, and each one has a captivating story, and yet. Probably just because I'm a dude, I'm a little biased here. Uh, I'm enjoying the stories of our our, our male characters uh, just as much, if not more. Uh, and I just want to thank you for getting dudes right. You know, they have their stories on their own. Uh, they don't seem to be just, uh, you know, arm, arm candy for the heroine. Like you are deftly avoiding any of those stereotypes. And I, I, that's what I like about this story is that uh, although the cover and the back cover are emphasizing uh, Caridwin, uh, this is a bigger world. Uh, there are there are more uh, heroes going on here, and more themes uh, than than even that central journey of identity and getting over the guilt. But that alone, uh, by itself, I think is is also a captivating story. I particularly love stories um, that can be read by both guys and girls, and really appreciated by both. And so that's why you know I love getting to have both male and female main characters and write stories that are very you know, character heavy, but also very action heavy. Um, so it feels like something that you can pick up, whether you're a guy or a girl, and you're going to connect to one of the stories and relate to something that's happening in it um, and enjoy the the experience. There was a line used by two uh, authors, I think, uh, who used to work with uh, your agent and publisher, Steve Lobby, and Randall Ingermanson and John B. Olson, who wrote the science fiction novel in the early 2000s, uh, Oxygen. I believe the line they used to uh, maybe even in the proposal was, uh, oh, how did that go? Uh, strong enough for a man, uh, soft enough for a woman, or something like that. Like, you know, it was, I, I think I'm misquoting that just a little bit, but it's still stuck in my head as an example of what you're saying is a, is a balanced story there. You know, a robust world, robust characters. I mean, you've got, you've got some violence going on in here. You know, that'll probably be in the discern section for the Lorehaven Review is, this is a, this is at times a very noble, dark story. Um, there are, horrors of war that are not over described you know you're not going all nihilistic about it uh but war is terrible uh and once the invaders come ashore and they're setting traps and of course you got all these uh, elemental attacks from various horses and such it can get pretty violent i'd say that if this were a movie it would be well pretty much like uh, the two towers or return of the king you know that level of pg-13 uh, violence and yet it is, I think, for a redemptive purpose. Uh, it's propelling our characters forward on this journey, and particularly uh, Caridwen, as she uh, is forced at some point to grasp the reins of leadership, uh, which, by the way, even 40% through the book uh, hasn't yet happened. Uh, so is the back cover a spoiler? No, because it's taking so long to get here, and you've got these uh, two other young men's stories going on at the same time as hers, riding alongside. So one thing that I think about, just even in writing a story that yes, doesn't shy away from things that are painful or broken or even, you know, the realities and horrors of war visiting a kingdom or a society. I think a lot about uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings 
Lord of the Rings and how he spoke a lot about the concept of eucatastrophe. And it's this idea that you have these moments that where it feels like everything is lost, <laughs> everything's broken, nothing can be redeemed, nothing can be restored. Hope is ending, and this is it. And you see that a lot throughout the Lord of the Rings, whether that's at Helm's Deep, where they're trapped inside and there are so many Urukai surrounding them, and there's no way they're going to escape. And then, right at that last moment where they're riding out to, you know, death or glory, Gandalf appears and hope breaks back into the story. And that's something that I really love to explore in writing. It's this concept of hope being lost, the end has come. And then hope breaks back in. And I think that's beautiful. And it hits with so much more uh, redemptive force when you've actually seen um, and felt the weight of how broken and how ruined things are. And then you get to see um, the light breaking in. And I, I love that concept. I love getting to explore that in fiction. This is such an intensely biblical theme. Suffer mm -hmm. hard, rejoice hard. Uh, I don't see that in any other worldview or religious system. And even some Christians are always uh, erring on the side of one or the other. It's either all suffering or all happiness. Uh, scripture and the gospel are constantly emphasizing both. Christ had to suffer as no one else ever has, not only physically, but spiritually, in order to die and atone for the sins of his people. And then, though, once he's resurrected, once that real-life moment of eucatastrophe, the good catastrophe, the good mm -hmm. sudden turn of events, once that breaks in, uh, it is time to celebrate. It's time to spread the kingdom. And that also brings responsibilities that Christians have of leadership, of ruling. Um, and I think a lot of Christians now might resonate with this theme of how do you rule a, a broken-apart kingdom when you're feeling broken yourself? And you may feel that everything you do leads to some kind of disaster. Uh, I see a lot of Christian leaders uh, struggling over that, uh, particularly when it comes to the political entanglements. I don't think that, you know, you went into the story intending this, but I'm seeing at least some application there. And I think that fiction uniquely, not just nonfiction or sermons or even songs, I think fiction is a fantastic way for Christians to simulate these challenges. You may get to the end of the book and you still not have an answer for how we're supposed to do this kind of leadership in the real world. But it helps to play through the possibilities and cultivate our imaginations in that way. So I'm looking forward to seeing where this story goes and uh, the rest of the Fireborn epic goes. So here's what I wanted to ask you about, Yakin. So you, you talked about how he's got these tattoos that are kind of, the, I guess, the scriptures of, of his holy, you know, his, his holy writ or whatever you call it, the holy scrolls. And then you've got Caradwin that's got these sort of false identities and this weight of guilt and, you know, trying to find meaning and self-worth. So it, is there a moment where we're sort of her need to find a, a better identity, her need to be released from this guilt, find worth? Is that, is there some kind of answer in that, uh, from Yakim? Well, maybe that's a spoiler. No, that could, it's probably a spoiler. That, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> that, that's probably a spoiler. So I'm just going to say that that's my theory that, that I'm, I'm theorizing. There's probably some kind of mashup there. But so let me just ask this as a question. What are some of the scriptures that Yakim has on as tattoos? Yeah. So rather than specific scriptures, um, he has like the essential truths of their faith, essentially um, tattooed on his forearms. Um, and there are some scriptures elsewhere, but we mainly kind of see the essential truths in the story. And so um, one that we see right at the start is that a it is true. 
um, which really is something that can you know, convict Yakim as he starts off his story with a lie um, and then becomes, oh, if, if Aed is true and I'm his scroll, I'm supposed to be following and serving him. <laughs> how can I do that if I've built everything around this lie? Um, Aed is compassionate. Aed is merciful, um, is one that shows up in the story over and over again. Mm. Um, and that um, particularly, particularly becomes meaningful to Caridwen. Because she's grown up in a society where you have to earn everything. Um, they really honor warriors who earn glory in battle. Um, that's how you build a legacy. That's how you kind of exist beyond death by earning a place in the histories and legends and lore. Um, and because of this you know, event that's caused so much guilt <laughs> in her life, um, she feels like she's lost to that. And she's only ever faced judgment become because of that. And so the concept of someone being merciful and offering forgiveness that she has not earned um, is something that she can't quite wrap her mind around um, and is a struggle for her to begin to to even be able to comprehend. Yeah, I like that. I, I see some themes of grace versus works there. So that's, I'll bet that goes really deep there. I love that emphasis on the attributes of Aed. Uh, I got to say, though, a, a little bit more on the, the humorous side uh, that Marvel fans need to just put that image right out of your heads when you hear that Yakin is a scroll. Just put that out of your head. He actually is himself. He's not an alien. Uh, he's not a shape-shifting alien. It, it really was Nick Fury all along. Uh, scroll. S-C-R-O-L-L. <laughs> I wonder if we'll see scrolls in, uh, in, in, in the next Spider-Man. No, probably not. What, that, that wait, what, what, more going on. Which movie are you referring to? Because now I'm The uh, scrolls are in Captain Marvel uh, and in um, uh, the Spider-Man Far From Home. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. yes. So that, that is a spoiler. <laughs> yes. It turns out, that, oh, it was an alien all along. So yeah, they're, they're scrolls like skull with an R. Oh, so, oh, yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, Keen yeah, is, okay. a, is a scroll, like, you know, the, the type of thing that you would open <laughs> up in the synagogue and then read and say, today yeah. the scripture is fulfilled in your midst. And I, I love these, uh, you know, getting more serious again, I, I love these these attributes of God uh, that form uh, this, this, this heart of the story. It's kind of subtle right now, at least 40% through. Um, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that makes the story world work even better uh, when it's just part of the tapestry. It's part of the part of the world building, uh, which I guess then leads to my final uh, question here for chapter three. What is next for the Fireborn Epic series uh, and your creative future, Jillian? Yeah, so the Fireborn Epic is a trilogy. So there are three books in the series. I'm currently writing book two, um, which the title I'm not going to tell you what it is, but if you have book one, um, it is revealed at the very end of the book. So that's something you can look forward to. When Easter you egg. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so in the middle of writing book two, I am very excited about it. We're going to see even more action, even more character depth. Um, and we're going to get to see some more of these three storylines just coming together um, in some really exciting ways. And um, yeah, leading to just some very epic conclusions in the third book. Fantastic. Do you have a release frame for book two and or book three? Not yet. Okay. Um, so still in the writing process, but I'm excited to hopefully get to tell you guys more about that soon. All right. And I understand the audiobook is coming out soon uh, from the new owner of Enclave Publishing, which is uh, Oasis uh, Family Media. Uh, you guys at Enclave have been working with them for audiobooks for the past few months. Uh, we talked about that at the Lorehaven news page. And now, uh, just last week, uh, they announced that uh, Enclave uh, was going to keep its same production team, all the same authors, all of that. Uh, uh, and yet they are now under new management there uh, with Oasis. So 
If you cannot uh, read the books, just wait a little bit and you'll be able to get them in audiobook form. And we look forward to sharing more about that in the future. Jillian, where can folks follow you as you ride onto the social medias such as Instagram and the like? Yes, Instagram is my favorite place to hang out with readers. Um, so definitely, if you are on Instagram, come hang out with me there. I love sharing book recommendations, talking about stories, even thinking about how we can, you know, be living courageously in our own lives, um, kind of like the heroes of our favorite books. So Instagram is my favorite place. Um, I'm also on Facebook uh, at Jillian Bronte Adams and then on my website where I'm building out a whole section that just has some cool behind the scenes stuff um, about a fire and ash. So if you check out my website, there's a page there that gives you some insight into the different magical breeds of horses that we see in the first book. All links in the show notes, folks. You know how it's done. Jillian, thank you so much for writing in today. And we wish you Godspeed aboard the elemental horses as you continue into the world of the Fireborn Epic. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for joining us. Our thanks once again to Jillian for joining us. Uh, once more, we're going to exit the world of elementally charged horses and review our third sponsor for this episode, uh, Andrew D. Meredith, the author of the fantasy novel Thrice. This one has a great endorsement from New York Times bestselling author Graham McNeil, uh, who wrote A Thousand Sons. He says of this book, Steeped in a wealth of brooding Slavic folklore, Thrice is a deeply personal story of a reluctant father and the mysterious child in his care. It beautifully weaves a tale of personal survival with a much grander narrative of ill-fated bargains and dangerous magic of the past to tell a story that's both intimate and epic. That was the endorsement. Here's the back cover. Forced out on the road with the boy left in his care, Jovan determines to journey into the cave of the bear to seek out those that would do him and his boy harm. It is the boy and his bottomless well of soul-searing magic that they seek. They would do anything to exploit it, and Jovan would do anything to stop them. Thrice is book one of the Needle and Leaf series. You can get the rest of the book description in our show notes for episode 91, as well as by going to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Also, take a look at that great book cover when you're there. Well, let's jump into the comm station and see if any uh, we, we got any Pony Express uh, kind of mail here. Sort of. We, we've got uh, some comments on an article that just came out that was a little controversial. So this was an article Mike Duran just wrote last week. And I'm going to quote from the last part of his article. This is what uh, seemed to uh, kind of stir the pot a bit. Mike says, quote, Augustine suggests the church in all ages should take good and useful things from pagans and use them for God's purposes. The Christian need not have copyrights to quote from pagan poets, nor patents to use technology for missional ends. Using wealth, cultural commodities, or intellectual properties, the church should mine the field of culture for their riches, redeeming them for good ends whenever possible. Indeed, those Egyptians must have felt infuriated to watch their Israelite neighbors tromp off into the wilderness with family silverware and Sphinx bust. But even worse, they may have realized the Israelites would use these very riches to undermine the pagan gods. Likewise, the Christian church should continue to wage war using books, cartoons, nature documentaries, or whatever cultural commodities are at our disposal. Drinking the tears of our oppressors is a fitting toast to their plunder. 
Okay, Stephen, I think I see the controversial part, but before I give my opinion about that, what do you think about this? Well, I, of course, had a hand in this piece, so I'll take some responsibility there. <laughs> However, I don't think there's a need to take responsibility. I think this is one of those lines, like unto the Psalms, where this psalmist, uh, feeling the, the hardship of persecution from oppressors, is arguably right, understandable, maybe morally wrong, but at least understandably speaking, that sentiment of, like, I want something bad to happen to my enemies. This is not without biblical precedent. And that's why I, I left that in there and, and would encourage people to think about this rather than reacting so quickly uh, to the idea of, as Mike says, drinking the tears of our oppressors. Uh, Mike is talking about people who are legitimately trying to oppress Christians, not that nice person you know down the road who had a bad experience with the church. I, I think a lot of people were responding to this line because they weren't thinking about cultural oppressors of Christianity. They may deny that this happens, or they're just not bringing them into the conversation here. Uh, this is the context, though, that Mike was writing about, as people who want to keep Christians out of the cultural conversation and will go to not only rhetorical or cultural means of keeping Christians out, but actual legal means. We're not just living in a neutral world anymore, like we were talking about several episodes ago. We're living in a negative world. And Christians, I think, can debate amongst ourselves about the risks of power and what happens when absolute power corrupts absolutely. But increasingly, we're dealing with an absolute power, and it's not on the side of evangelical Christians in America who can, I think, feel very powerful, especially to someone who has experience with a bad religious environment. But in this context, they're not as powerful as you think. Uh, it is the folks who want to keep out the Christians, even if the Christians are behaving with excellence and making great stuff and are being very winsome and all of that. If you don't affirm the secular religion now, they'll kick you out. And that was the context of this article was, how dare this church, controversial though it may be, uh, with some associations with a guy named Doug Wilson and all of that, like how dare they use their resources to make a nature documentary and publish YA fantasy novels. And as we said in the article, like, <laughs> we've actually reviewed some of those at Lorehaven. And I mean, I haven't read any of them myself, but our review team liked them. And again, that's something that Christians can debate. But what I think is it should be assumed as part of the debate is that Christians do struggle to love our enemies. They're not just friends that we haven't made yet. These are actual enemies who want to, in some way, destroy Christianity, uh, oppose the gospel. And for that, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the psalmist had some very harsh sounding things to say, uh, even if it was just us talking amongst ourselves, sharing our frustrations. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul also had some harsh things to say. Can we say those things uh, without sinning? I don't exactly know. Uh, only Mike knows his heart here, but don't judge him as if he's that bad, abusive pastor you knew once uh, who shouldn't be allowed to say something like drinking the tears of our oppressors is a fitting toast to their plunder. Uh, I wouldn't stop there uh, at the Egyptian tears tumbler, you know, uh, uh, indulging in the <laughs> grief of our enemies and uh, praising the lamentations of their women. Like, don't stop there. There's more to do. But it's not sinful, automatically sinful to say so. Uh, and I think that anyone who claims that it is uh, may be verging into legalism there. It's the appearance of evil, but it's not necessarily actual evil to suggest that it's okay uh, to rejoice when our oppressors' schemes are thwarted. Yeah, I saw some of the responses to this, and, I, um, and, and I, I've seen this kind of topic come up before. And I, I think what, what gets lost in translation a little bit here is, is what are we saying we want to happen. Now, now you said a minute ago, 
I think a lot of people assume that this means that Christians want something bad to happen to non-Christians. And that's not, I mean, that's almost like a straw man thing, right? That's not even what we're saying. We're saying there are people that lament when Christians make any advance in society, when the gospel makes inroads into culture, um, when Christians publish their own works, which is what this whole original article was about, that, that people are upset that Christian books are getting published, that Christian movies are getting made. And um, look, I, I think it's actually wrong to empathize with people who are upset about that. I think I would that agree is, with that. I agree. That is disordered empathy. Because then what are you what are you doing if you're empathizing with the enemies of the church? Are, are you are you are saying God is wrong to advance his kingdom and that people who are against God are right. And and that and that is totally unscriptural. Now I you know, I, I've done the whole strengths finder thing. Empathy is one of my top ones. I, I'm very and I'm very sensitive to this whole debate that goes on about empathy. But I, I think if people are taking this too far. You don't need to weep with those who weep if they are weeping about Christ being known. Okay. Like I am not it is never right to weep with someone because I mean, because think about it in a missions context. If you went to a very closed country, let's say in the Middle East or South Asia or East Asia, and someone became a Christian, well, as would happen in a lot of those places, the family would be very upset about this. They, they, they would cry, some, they might scream, they might persecute the new believer. Now, imagine a Christian walking into the scene of this and saying, oh, I feel your pain. You know, your son has left your traditional faith and, and gone over to the, this Christian faith. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. What? I mean, like that would be so bizarre and, and wrong. Now I would absolutely weep with the new convert that has lost his family ties, that may have lost his job, that may have to move, you know, and is being persecuted. Yes. I'm going to weep with the person being persecuted, but I'm not going to weep with the persecutor. Like that's just wrong. Yeah, and and so and point. you know th- this is one of those moments where, quite honestly, you see the masks come off with people, and you see who which side they're really rooting for. And look, this is not to say the church does everything right or Christians do everything right, but at the end of the day, are you going to celebrate the church growing and expanding or not? And and yes, like and when this is not even about politics, this is not about you know people being embarrassed by. Well, you know, embarrassing behavior. This is about um, the the word of God going out in creative ways, and we should celebrate that. And even if it's not our cup of tea, look, I'm not going to watch the next God's Not Dead movie, whatever it is. Okay, I don't really care about that. But but if someone gets upset about that movie, like, oh, I can't believe that movie's in the theaters. Well, <laughs> guess what? I don't really care if they don't like it. Like, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to justify that anger or bitterness at a Christian movie, even if I don't like it. Amen to that. Uh, I think a part of this is that uh, Christians uh, who are studying in the scriptures must be accustomed to living in a world where there are people who believe differently from us. Uh, we should just get used to that as the background noise, we're, whether it's the internet or TV or our friends or whatever. We're constantly hearing stuff that we disagree with, and we are not meant to always be in an angry mode about that. That's actually the type of Christian you don't want to be, who's just so fearful and so angry at what's going on all the time. 
that we can't get anything done for the kingdom. We certainly can't be more like Christ uh, in order to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us if we're stuck in that mode all the time. However, what I see sometimes, and I, I don't necessarily apply this to you know, folks who had some questions about what Mike said here, but there is a trend out there of, of professing Christians who are like this about other Christians. Uh, they are counterculture to evangelical culture, and it seems that they are unable to live with the constant chatter of even those bad sorts of Christians who make cheesy media or who have bad or radical political ideas. Uh, we need to, in some ways, get used to that and not be so reactionary and angry and hostile to any expression of those things. We've got to, in Christ, learn to live with the crazy evangelical uncles as well as we need to live with the crazy secular uncles. There's going to be crazy people in the world, you know, whether or not uh, they're publishing fantasy. I mean, that's something that we also have to live with, Zach, is you know, some authors of Christian fantasy may believe some weird stuff or even some arguably unbiblical stuff. How do we deal with that? Well, that calls for wisdom. And I think that's the kind of wisdom that we can only understand through life experience, applying the gospel and applying the commandments of the word of God uh, in this real world environment, which means we have to make some tough decisions. I think that's a main reason why we need fiction to help us simulate these kinds of choices. We were mentioning earlier uh, in our interview with Jillian is only fiction can tr help train our imaginations to work through these issues. Uh, will we then get to the end and discover that we should have done something different? I don't know. But sometimes these decisions are not so black and white. Uh, sometimes there are very gray areas. And that means that we have to make tough calls when addressing the weird beliefs of other Christians. But the one thing I think that we must not do is automatically assume that if a secular person uh, is upset at the Christian, then the Christian is at fault. Uh, I call that an emotional bribe. Uh, I think that means mm -hmm. that someone has uh, suffered under legit oppression by an evangelical figurehead of some kind, be it a parent or pastor or you know member of the board at your school or whatever. Uh, I, I think that we ought to avoid those kinds of emotional bribes. Uh, that is showing partiality, not based mm -hmm. on wealth or position, but out of belief. Maybe the evangelical is just so familiar with the evangelical world and how the sausage gets made among Christians yeah. that you forget it can be the same or worse uh, in the secular world. They have way more conspiracies uh, than I think even evangelical Christians have. Uh, the real power is among those who are opposed to the church. I think we just maybe feel that the real power is among evangelicals. Um, this could be a whole episode on its own, uh, yeah. but I, I think that it calls for wisdom uh, to engage and empathize with someone who is saying, hey, uh, maybe it's good to celebrate when the bad guys lose. I mean, can you do that for a person uh, who is celebrating uh, the victory of their team uh, in the tournament? This is a secular argument, actually, not even a Christian or missional argument. Um, can you empathize with the person who is glad that their team won? Uh, can I be glad that the chosen Christmas special was number one at the box office instead of oh, a secular movie? Uh, yeah. that's that there. I mean, you know, does that mean I want to drink the tears of, uh, you know, whoever was number two <laughs> or three in the box office? I don't know, but the Bible, I think does not rule out those kinds of, um, bold statements, uh, those yeah. kinds of even hyperbolic statements, uh, hyperbolic language uh, is not, is not nearly so much a sin as someone who is trying to oppose the advance of the kingdom uh, and oppose the good creative influence of Christians who are telling stories and making documentaries or whatever. So in John 17, Jesus says, by this, all men will know that I've come from the father. If you have love for one another. And I think there is a knee jerk tendency sometimes 
with Christians is that we get embarrassed by other Christians and we think, oh, if I can just apologize for those Christians or even throw them under the bus, then people, other people, uh, secular people will believe in Jesus. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, oh, you know, say that you're, announce yourself one of the good Christians. In fact, he told an entire parable about don't be the guy that says, oh, I thank you. I'm not like those guys. Ooh. So, hey, we got to heed that, right? But let, let me just end with something a little more encouraging. This is Philippians 1, uh, 15 through 18, where Paul says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Amen. That's there we amazing. go. Look, that's amazing. If, if you don't like the chosen being number one, if you don't like Doug Wilson's church, whatever, being a part of these books, whatever you think of the motives of any of these people, let's rejoice that Christ is being preached and the message is being heard because we are ultimately talking about the eternal salvation of other people. And so it, look, if this happens in a way you don't like, Christ is still advancing and he is being preached. Amen. I think that's a great way to practice being empathetic for our non-Christian neighbors. Practice being empathetic for your Christian neighbors, even if they use some hyperbole, even if they have some weird beliefs, even if they're associated with folks who have actually caused the church, maybe even you, great harm. That is a very tall order. And yet I think Christ's grace is sufficient to train ourselves to discipline uh, in order to practice that kind of righteous empathy. Uh, Empathy, like any other good desire, can become an idol. Uh, Someone once said, oh, it's a sin of empathy. Like, I I would actually prefer the idol of empathy because any good virtue, and I think empathy is a good virtue given by God, but it can get out of control and it can become an idol. Uh, Let's practice making sure that we order our empathy rightly as we enjoy these kinds of stories and as we react to the believers and unbelievers around us. Next on Fantastical Truth, it's some form of elvish. In the common tongue, it reads, The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring film, released 20 years ago this month. Don't you feel old, even older than one of the <laughs> Dunedain Rangers? Yes, this film truly changed our world forever. So we shall host a good Narnian prince, Rillian himself, returning from last Christmas's episode about the voyage of the Dawn Treader. This time we will explore how Christians have loved exploring Sepeta Jackson's one film trilogy to rule them all from 2001 until now. Meanwhile, as you ride your horses into battle, make sure that you are fighting like a Christian. Uh, Make sure if you're a woman, you're fighting like the daughter of a king. If you are a man, you're fighting like a son of the king. And enjoy all stories for his glory alone. Be like Christ, even while you are fighting against your enemies. And make sure to order that empathy rightly as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 